All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, kids, go ahead and raise up your hands so we can see where you're at. It's a little easier to spot you today, but... All right, how many of you like, uh, you know, getting birthday presents or Christmas presents? Hmm? Fans of presents? All right, how many of you like giving birthday presents or Christmas presents? All right, have any of you ever, like, given your mom or dad a present on their birthday? Like, maybe, like, made a card for them or something or drawn a picture? Okay, so here's my question for you. Let's imagine a situation in which it's your mom's birthday, and you decide, I'm going to draw a picture, or I'm going to make some sort of craft thing for my mom for her birthday, and you give it to your mom, and your mom says, I love this so much, and then she spends the rest of her day just holding that picture and looking at it and talking to it and thinking about it, and then just kind of ignores you completely. How would that make you feel? Bad? Good. Who, who's, who, thinks, who, who, would, who would like that if their mom did that? Who would not like that if their mom did that? Right? In the same way that like, if we get a gift from our parents, it would be really rude for us to like, just love that gift more than we love our parents, right? Well, today in our passage, we, are, we, we see Jesus uh, healing 10 people. He heals 10 people from leprosy, which was a skin disease. But of those 10 people, only one of those people comes back to Jesus and actually wants to be with him. Um, And that tells us that as his people, as God's people, as his children, we want to not just love the gifts that he gives us, but we want to love him. We want to love him more than the gifts that he gives us. And so, kids, I would encourage you to go home today and talk to your parents about that, uh, especially at a time like this uh, where Christmas is approaching, to talk about how we should be people who appreciate God as the giver more than we appreciate and are thankful for the gifts that he gives. Uh, Let's pray together, and we'll read our passage this morning. God, we thank you that... uh, even in a time like this, we have the opportunity, we have the, the freedom, we have the possibility to gather together to worship you. And even for those that, that can't be here this morning, we can still worship you together even when we're not in the same place. We can see uh, brothers and sisters all around the world worshiping you uh, through online media, and we can celebrate with them the same God and the same Son who came to, to die in our place. God, we thank you for your word this morning and pray that you would help us to, to understand what you want us to, to, to get from this passage this morning, that, that we would, would benefit and, and glean insight from your word this morning, that you would use it to, uh, to stir our affections for you and that we would, would leave with... Uh, more fully renewed and fully transformed minds and hearts ready to do your will, not out of some obligation to obey, but out of a love for you. God, we thank you for your word this morning and pray that you would send your spirit to help us to understand it together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. And we're going to read verses 11 through 37 this morning. Again, that's Luke chapter 17. And we're going to read verses 11 through 37. 
On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So in our passage this morning, we kind of have these two, these two chunks. The first is when Jesus cleanses or heals these ten lepers. And the second part is this kind of slightly strange passage about the coming of God's kingdom as Jesus is responding to a question from the Pharisees. And so first, we see the cleansing of these ten lepers in verse 11. Luke again reminds us that Jesus is still on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. This has been a really long journey in the Gospel of Luke because a whole lot has happened along the way that Luke wants us to know about. So he says that he's now kind of passing along the border between Galilee and Samaria. So he's getting closer to Jerusalem and he's kind of right kind of in between where Galilee ends and Samaria begins. And as he enters a village, Luke says that ten lepers, he's met by them and he says, that they're at a distance. They had to be at a distance from him because of law, because they had a contagious skin condition. And so they're they're far off, but they lift up their voices and they yell, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They know enough about Jesus. They've heard enough about Jesus to have faith to ask him to heal them. They believe that he can heal them. And so they call out to him, asking him to have mercy on them. And Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priests. What he's telling them to do here is he's telling them to start the purification process. He's answering their questions, saying, okay, I'm going to have mercy on you. You're going to be cleansed. Go ahead and head to the temple so that you can start the process of purification. And Luke says that as they went, 
they were cleansed. So all ten of them, they obey Jesus, they, they step out in faith, they, they believe that he can heal them, and they start taking action on that. They're, they're headed to the priests so they can start that process, and Luke says that as they were going, as they were on their way, they were healed from their leprosy. But then we get verse 15. He says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. So one of the ten, when he recognizes that he's been healed, when he recognizes that Jesus has has done for him what he's asked for him to do, he does four things. The first thing he does is he turns back. He, He stops his current course of action because of what God has done for him, and he goes back to where Jesus is. He recognizes that the best thing that has happened to him that day is not being cleansed from his leprosy. The best thing that has happened to him that day is that he has met Jesus. And now that he's been cleansed of his leprosy, he can go be with Jesus where he is. And so that's what he does. He goes back to Jesus. He praises God with a loud voice. He recognizes that this healing that has happened to him, it's been done by God. And so he's praising God. He's giving God credit for what Jesus has done. And he falls down uh, on his face at Jesus' feet. This is important for us to see here because what's happening here is he's praising God and he falls down at Jesus' feet. He's worshiping Jesus as God and Jesus receives his worship as God because he is God. Jesus is, is saying he is the one that has cleansed this leper and he is the one that is worthy of his praise. So this leper falls down and worships him and he gives him thanks. He responds with thanksgiving because of what Jesus has done for him this day. Then Luke tells us at the very end of all of this, he says, now he was a Samaritan. And we read that and we think, okay, that's cool, right? He's in this region, so there were chances that he could have been a Jew or chances that he could have been a Samaritan. But any first century reader kind of reading the gospel of Luke for the first time, when he gets to this point and Luke says, now he was a Samaritan, they would, they would gasp. They would have been shocked by that. That would have been kind of a, an unexpected cliffhanger at the end of the episode, right? This, this is surprising because these are not the people of God. The people of God are the Jews, and so they're the ones that should respond rightly to Jesus, but it's the Samaritan in this case who does, and Jesus asks questions in response. He says, we're not ten cleansed. Yes, Ten were. Where are the nine? The answer is, we don't know where they are. They're not there. They went somewhere else. They, they took their cleansing and ran. This one went back to Jesus. He said, there was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. Again, the answer is no. This guy is the one that responds rightly. Out of the ten that are healed, only one of them responds rightly to his healing. Look what Jesus says at the end in verse 19. He says, he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Uh, this phrase here at the very end could, could also be translated, your faith has saved you. I think that's really important because uh, he, he's already been made well at this point. And so at the very end, Jesus tells him to, to get up and to go on his way and that he's, he's been made well. It, what Jesus is saying here is that something greater has happened for him than has happened for the other ten or the other nine. Uh, they had faith that Jesus could heal them. This one has faith that Jesus can do more than just cleanse him from his leprosy. This one has faith that Jesus can fully make him well, that Jesus can fully transform him, that Jesus can fully save him from things far worse than a skin condition. That's why he comes back to Jesus. That's why he falls on his face and worships. That's why he gives thanks, because he believes that Jesus can do much more than just save him from this sickness. And he does. Jesus makes him fully well, fully made new, fully saved. 
In verse 20, Jesus gets this question about the coming of God's kingdom. Uh, The Pharisees say, when will the kingdom of God come? And he answers them. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. What he's saying here, and it's, it's in other translations, it says that it's, it's not coming with signs that can be observed. And what he's telling the Pharisees in response to their question is that there aren't things that are going to happen that will predict the coming of the kingdom of God. There, there aren't you know, signs we can seek out, things we can look for to know when that is going to come. He says, uh, nobody's going to say, look, here it is, or there it is, because there aren't signs to be observed. Instead, he says, at the end of verse 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying the kingdom of God is already there. It's, it's right in front of them. And I mean, just look at the irony of these Pharisees, these people who should have known the law, these people who should have known the Old Testament, these people who should have had the best expectation for who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to be like. And here they are in Luke 17, asking the Messiah, asking the Messianic King, when the kingdom of God is going to come. They don't get that it's right there in front of them. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, clearly, it's not coming in signs that can be observed because they should have known. They should have recognized who it is that they're talking to, but they've missed it. So Jesus turns and he talks to his disciples. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So there's going to come a time in the future when the disciples are going to want to see Jesus and they're not going to be able to see him. He's going to leave and they're going to be waiting for him to come back, but they're not going to get to see that. They're going to die before that happens. Jesus says, and they will say to you, other people are going to say, look there or look here. Don't go out to follow them. So there are going to be people before Jesus comes back that are going to say, look, he's over here, or look, he's over there. And Jesus is saying, don't buy it. This is why, verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So Jesus is saying that when he returns, when he comes back, that his return is going to be like lightning that flashes in the sky. Everybody is going to be able to see it. It's going to light up the sky from one side to the other. We will know that it's going to happen. Because of that, we don't need to freak out when people are like, oh, look, he's over here, or look, he's over there, because we'll know when it happens. His coming is going to be unexpected, and we're going to get to that in a few verses, but it's going to be known about by everyone when it happens. But first, he says, In verse 25, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before these things are going to happen, Jesus is going to go to the cross. We're going to see that happen and that unfold as we move through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. But here he's going to explain more about this coming judgment. He uses a couple illustrations from Noah and Lot in verses uh, 26 and following. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was on the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. He says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The point of these illustrations is that these people in Noah's day and in Lot's day were just going on about their lives. They were just doing normal, mundane, everyday kind of things, not knowing about the judgment that was coming. And Jesus is saying that his return is going to be the same way. People are going to be living their lives, doing normal things, not knowing that this judgment is about to fall, and then it's going to happen. He says, on that day, verse 31, let one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, 
let the one who is in the field not turn back. This is uh, kind of imagery taken from when an, an army is about to invade. And he's saying when an army is very close to the city, you don't have time to do stuff. You just run. You just leave. You escape. And he's saying that people are not going to have time to do that. They're not going to be able to escape the judgment that came. Lot and Noah escaped judgment because God saved them. But that's the only way that we're going to have to escape this judgment. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, verse 32, right? She looked back uh, and was condemned. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. If we try to preserve our old life, we will lose it. If we surrender our life to Jesus, we will get true life, and we will flourish as his people because of what he's done for us. Next, he says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. So it's not clear here whether being taken is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, But one is going to avoid judgment and the other one is not going to avoid judgment. It doesn't seem that this is talking about people just kind of disappearing in front of the eyes of other people. It's saying one's going to be taken away to judgment. One is going to be left uh, behind. Now look down at verse 36. If you have a Bible in front of you. There's not a verse 36, right? In, in, in my Bible, at least, it skips. Verse 35, there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and one left. 37, and they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. And then if we look all the way down the page, we've got this footnote, which says, some manuscripts add verse 36. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. So this is kind of weird. This is not something that normally happens in our Bibles. So I want to explain kind of what's going on here. Um, so a couple background things first. Um, when the New Testament was written, they didn't have chapter and verse numbers. And so like Luke, as he's writing uh, his gospel, he's not like, all right, this is chapter 1, and this is verse 1, and this is verse 2. Um, he's just writing. And, and the way they wrote manuscripts is the, the words are just all smashed together, which sounds crazy to us, right? Imagine trying to read the Bible when all the words just run together and you have to figure out where the words stop and the words end. And at the end of the line, they don't stop at a word. They stop in the middle of a word and just wrap all the way around. And they, they could read that because obviously they were way smarter than we are. Um, but that's how, that's how the manuscripts looked. There weren't chapter and verse. It wasn't until um, the 16th century that this guy named Robert Stephanus added chapters and verses to the New Testament. His son did it, that he, his son said that he did it while he was traveling from Paris to, to Lyon. And there's kind of this running joke that he was riding a horse and like wherever he hit a bump, that was where he made a new verse. Because in some places, verse breaks are really strange. Like if you look up at verse 32, it says, remember Lot's wife. And that's a really, that's a really short verse. And so like there are points where he just like makes a new verse and you think like, why did he make the verse there? Um, and so he made those divisions. They weren't original to the text. This guy did it, uh, and it's, it's, we're, we're really thankful that he did it because they're very helpful because you can say, hey, look at verse uh, 1735, and then people know immediately what you're talking about, and it's kind of a universal standard now. And so for him, as he's making these divisions, he evidently had a manuscript that had verse 36 as part of the text, and that's why he created a verse there. But 
uh, the best manuscripts we have available for the Greek New Testament, the verse 36 is not in them. It's not doesn't seem to be part of the original gospel of Luke. And so some manuscripts have it, some manuscripts don't have it. And there's essentially two options here for, for what happened. Option one is that um, verse 36 may have accidentally been left out by scribes copying the New Testament. So the way the New Testament was copied, right, they didn't have Xerox machines. And so what they would do is there would be a room where someone has a copy of a manuscript up in front of the room, just like this. And I would just sit here and read this manuscript to you, and you would be out there making copies of it again and again and again. That's what you would do like your whole life. You would just make copies of books audibly, and then they would send them out to people. And that's how we got more manuscripts. And so one thing that happens sometimes is that for words that ended the same, or that sounded the same at the end of the line, that scribes would hear that, they would think that it was what they heard before and they would skip it. In the same way that if you've ever been reading a book and two lines end with the same word or a similar ending and you accidentally like skip a sentence and then you realize, wait a second, that doesn't make sense and you go back and you're like, oh, I just, I skipped that word because it ended the same way. That happened sometimes as scribes were copying. They made some mistakes in the copying of manuscripts. So that could have happened, which is why uh, maybe it's not in the text. But what is more likely, that's the second option, is that scribes who were familiar with a similar passage in Matthew where Jesus says uh, two men will be left in the field and one will be taken the other left, added it in to this point to say, hey, I think that this should be here, so I'm going to write this here. Um, But... As I said at the very beginning, the very best manuscripts, the oldest, the best, the most, don't have this as part of the text. That's why in the ESV and in most other translations, it's just down at a footnote. But the verse skips because those were the verse numbers originally, and that's what we still use. And so it looks strange to go from 35 to 37, but, but that's the way that it should be. Um, I know that that's, that's confusing. That's not something that we normally talk about on a Sunday morning. Um, that's kind of a, a strange thing. It's, it, it should not cause you to have less confidence in your Bibles. Uh, we have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of witnesses to the text of the New Testament. And there are people that devote their lives to studying those and making sure that our English Bibles are the best possible translations they can be. And we should have complete confidence in them. Uh, and even in a place like this, where there's this verse stuck down in the footnotes, it shouldn't cause us to lose that confidence. Um, If you have more questions about that, I would love to talk to you more about that, give you more information. Um, Anytime we have something like this, I'm always hesitant to talk about it because it's just like, hey, we're going to open up this big can of worms and I don't have time to talk about all the things and then we're just going to kind of shove the lid on it and hope that we got it closed. So if you have questions, if you want to talk more about that, uh, I'd be more than willing to talk to you about that. Last is verse 37. They said to him, so these things are going to happen, to kind of come back to the text here. These things are going to happen. Jesus is going to come. Judgment is going to come with him. Some people are going to experience judgment. Some people are going to escape judgment. And they ask him, the disciples, say, where, Lord? They're saying, like, like, where are these things happening? When, When are we going to see this? Where are we going to see this? And he says to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Which is, I mean, is a pretty standard Jesus response. But like, if you can imagine being in their place, right? They're hearing 
that Jesus is going to leave them, first of all, right? They've already been told that he's going to die, but now they're told that he's going to leave them. They're going to be waiting for him to come back. They're not going to see it. People are going to say that he's here, he's there. Uh, Judgment is going to come, and they want some information, right? In the same way that we would want some information. We would want details. We want to know what's going to happen. You know, like when, when my dad comes in town, my wife wants to know when he's getting there and when he's leaving, right? If Jesus is coming, we want the details. And he says... Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, which is a really, really odd response. But what he seems to be saying here is that just like vultures know where the dead bodies are, they know where corpses are. They just, they just do, right? You can be driving down the highway and you see a bunch of them hovering off the side of the road. Somehow, some way, because they can smell it, they know there's a dead body there and they're just going to stay there until they find it, right? In the same way like that, we will know when Jesus returns. We're not going to miss it. It's going to be like lightning flashing from one side to the other. It's not going to be something that people miss out on. If we are waiting for him, we will recognize him when he comes. And so that's what this kind of uh, surprising, enigmatic, enigmatic, kind of quizzical response from Jesus means, that we will know when he returns. They can have confidence that they're not going to miss it. So what do we do with a passage like this, where we have these, these lepers who are healed, one responds rightly, nine don't respond rightly, and then we have this kind of response, question and answer about the coming of God's kingdom. I think that there are three ways that we can respond rightly to this passage this morning. The first is that we should be like that tenth leper, right? We should be the ones that worship and praise Jesus and give thanks to him, that fall down on our faces before him because of who he is and what he's done for us. Right? We don't want to be the people that take God's gifts and run from him. We want to be the people that take God's gifts and it causes us to run towards him. We want to worship him for who he is and what he's done for us and to respond rightly to the good things that he's given us. A second thing that we should take away from this passage is that Jesus is continually reminding the disciples that God's judgment is going to come unexpectedly. Right? Just like the days of Noah, just like the days of Lot, people are going to be going about their lives. They're going to be doing normal things. They're going to be planning for the future. They're going to be getting married and being given in marriage. They're going to be buying land. They're going to be doing things thinking that the future is coming when it's not coming because Jesus is coming. Judgment is going to fall, and we want to be people that are aware of that and that are preaching the good news to those around us, uh, not just verbally, but by being in relationship with people, by living missional lives, by modeling the gospel before the community around us so that more and more and more people will both see the good news in how we live and also hear the good news from our lips as we preach it to them. We need to be preparing for the judgment that's coming because we're the people that know that it's coming so that we might tell others about it. The third response that we should have is we should see in here the the reminder that Jesus is coming um, and that he's going to come unexpectedly, but but we'll know that it's going to happen. So number one, we don't need to be afraid that we're somehow going to miss it. Um, And I remember as a kid, it was, or it was not as a kid, I was older, but it was around the time when like the left behind books were super popular and everybody was talking about the rapture. Um, And I remember like, you know, as a rebellious teenager, young college student, like having multiple crises of faith where I just kind of would wonder, like, did, did the rapture happen and I missed it? Am, am, I, am I left behind? Am I now Kirk Cameron in the story? Um, but Jesus doesn't seem to say that that's going to happen. 
right? It's going to be like lightning flashing from one side of the sky to the other. We're going to know when it's going to happen. We're going to be like those vultures that know where the dead bodies are at. We will recognize him when he comes. And so we don't need to fear that we're going to miss it if we've put our faith in him. Um, Also, right, he makes it very clear that it hasn't happened yet. Since everyone will know and everybody doesn't know, it hasn't happened yet. And so we should be people that long for his coming, right? Especially in 2020. You know, like it's not like 2021 is going to get here and all the bad stuff that happened this year is going to be gone, right? It's going it's to continue as the calendar turns over. The only thing that's going to change the broken things in this world is Jesus coming back and setting all things right. That's what we need to happen. We don't need a new president. We don't need a new government. We don't need uh, a vaccine. We need Jesus to come back and make all things new. That is what's going to fix what's broken about this world. That's what's going to fix what's broken in us. That's what we need the most. And so we should be people that are praying for that and longing for that because we know that that is what's best for us. May he come quickly. Hopefully we're not like the disciples, that Jesus could tell us, hey, you're going to long for that day to come, but you're not going to see it. Hopefully we will see it, and we will see it soon. So today, as we continue in worship, let's worship him with hope hopeful hearts, knowing that he is coming again to set all things right. Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are coming back and that you're going to come back in a way that that will cause people not to miss it, that we're not going to miss out. And we don't need to fear missing out if we have trusted in you and we have put our faith in you. But, but we can have confidence that, that you have paid the penalty for us. So we're not going to be taken away to judgment. We're going to be taken to you to be with you where you are. Jesus, we pray that you would hasten your return. And that we, as your people, would know that your coming, that you setting all things right, you fully making all things new, you bringing the new heavens and the new earth down here is what we need more than anything. We don't need temporary fixes for our brokenness. We need to be healed by the only one that can heal us fully and finally. Jesus, we pray that you would cause us to be a people that cannot be satisfied by life here without you. And that we would find our satisfaction in you and in the hope of your return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.